to John chapter 3. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, <laughs> then uh, if it's because you're with us for the first time, that's fine, and we have some and we can share them. If you've been a Christian 10 years and you don't have a Bible in church, um, come and have a word with me. Okay, we're going to read from John chapter 3 in just a little bit. Uh, We are in this series on uh, Jesus' spirituality and asking, uh, what was Jesus' own life like and what can we learn from that in terms of our spiritual lives and being alive spiritually? Now, here's a few things that we might note about... I'll have to turn it on, that helps... Jesus' spiritual life. Uh, Jesus was, uh, his life was full of intimacy with Father God. People heard him praying to God and said, could you teach us to pray? Because there was something about the way he prayed. People could see that he was connected with his Father God. And there was an intimacy, which as we go through the Gospel of John, we'll see Jesus explaining what that's all about, how he is uniquely related to Father God. So he had an intimacy with God. Jesus' life was characterized by wisdom and peace. Those questions that he got asked in the temple and the tremendous wisdom with which he answered them were part of his spiritual connection to God. Uh, His life was characterized by peace. He wasn't troubled when the storm blew up at sea. And as others thought they might die, he remained asleep. He had a revelation. He knew the hearts of men, as it says in John chapter 2. Miraculous power. Uh, Again and again, these stories that fill the Gospels of people connecting with Jesus and finding this flow of power to change them, often resulting in healing and in freedom from unclean spirits. One woman simply touched the hem of his garment and power went out from him and changed her life forever. And he was full of love. He forgave, even whilst being nailed to a cross. He forgave and he endured through suffering, to achieve completely what his purpose was. That is a little bit of a summary, could have used different words, but paints a bit of a picture of what Jesus was like. The question is, for this morning, this morning's question is then, so how do we get that? I don't think there's anything on that list that we'd want to miss out on. How do we have that kind of life? How can we be in touch with Jesus spiritually, because it's a spiritual thing, in such a way that that describes what our lives are like? Well, the passage that we've got this morning answers that question, uh, but we would do well just to take a little step back and make sure that we understand something of the thinking that's in here, because this passage is about a man called Nicodemus coming to see Jesus in the night. We need to get our heads a little bit around what Nicodemus would have been thinking, because for centuries, the Jewish people had been expecting a new kingdom. That's what they called it. God had come and set them free from Egypt, where they had been slaves, and established the nation-state of Israel under, uh, first of all, a bunch of judges, and then the Israelites insisted on a king, and they had this kingdom that was brought about by God's hand, the kingdom of Israel. And yet, over the centuries, it had proven not quite to work properly. These kings that they had kept getting things wrong, The people were frequently immoral, unethical, and drifted away from any interest in the God who'd saved them and established them as a nation. And as the people of God in this nation prayed and sought God, he began to speak to them about 
uh, a new kingdom, a new kingdom expectations, that it wasn't just about trying to make the nation state of Israel work, but God was going to do something bigger and better and on a grander scale. And here are some of the things. They spoke about the prophets of the Old Testament, spoke about a special king who was going to come, specially anointed with special power from God, who would be called the Messiah, which means the anointed one. That as this new kingdom was established, there would be peace between nations, not one nation succeeding in conquering others, but something else, a new level of uh, relationship that that really, really worked. The Hebrew word for peace doesn't just mean that no one's going to war. It means that there's this wonderful well-being amongst people. And there are other verses that speak about that, not only affecting human relationships, but affecting everything. The lion will, wait, will lay down with the lamb. I mean, how much more profound a change in the order of things could you expect? And in this new age, this new kingdom, there would be intimacy with God for everyone. And you can look those references up and see that those things are there. So that's what Nicodemus was brought up on. He was brought up to expect that at some point, God would intervene by sending someone with special power who would sort these sorts of things out. Nicodemus lived right at the centre of the life of the nation of Israel. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, which is the closest equivalent we'd have today is to say that he was a member of the cabinet. It was the central governing council of the nation. So we'll just read the first few verses of John chapter 3. There was a man of the Pharisees, he was a Pharisee, named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night. Uh, People have speculated as to why it's at night. The most common uh, idea is because he didn't want to be spotted, because it was politically um, less than astute of him to go to Jesus as a member of, of the cabinet, as it were. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs that you are doing if God were not with him. We'll just pause there. And note that Nicodemus believed in Jesus' power. Up until this point in John's Gospel, we'd only had the story of uh, the wedding at Cana, the first miracle that Jesus does in John's Gospel. And yet, whether it was just from that or other miracles that John hasn't recorded at this point in his gospel, Nicodemus believed in God's power. And you can see the cogs going round in his head. Is this, is this man the anointed one? Is he the one who's going to bring in God's kingdom? Because there hadn't been anyone with that kind of authority, even to clear the temple as we looked at last week. Hadn't been anyone like that in their nation's history for centuries. So he was thinking maybe Jesus is bringing in the kingdom. Now, as a member of the Jewish ruling council, and as a Pharisee, Nicodemus's reasonable expectation would be that he, whatever Jesus was doing bringing in the kingdom, that he, Nicodemus, could expect to be right at the heart of it. That if there was to be a new king... Well, there was already a ruling council in place who would be able to work with that king. Or to put it a different way, we could, I think, reasonably see Nicodemus stepping forward and saying, well, look, by birthright and by hard work, I expect a part in this. By birthright in that God had committed himself to the people of Israel, anyone who was a Jew would expect to be part of this new kingdom. So by birthright, he expected to be part of this new spiritual life. But in addition, as a Pharisee, that meant that he had worked really, really hard to do everything right. 
It's a bit like having read your Bible for an hour a day, every day since you could read. So the kind of attitude that, I've done all the spiritual stuff right. So he would have expected that now there's a man who might be the anointed Messiah turning up. Nicodemus expected to be right at the heart of all that was going on and went to see Jesus. He had confidence, both on the basis of the covenant of generous uh, support that, that God had given to Israel, but also confidence that he'd done all the right stuff. Now, why am I, I feel like I'm laboring this a little bit. Why am I laboring it? Well, it's for this reason. I believe that most of us Christians have those two tendencies that I've just spoken about. Let me explain. On the one hand, we have a tendency to think that now that we're Christians, spiritual life is, is our birthright, and it will, you know, whatever God does, it'll have to involve us. And there's a kind of ease and relaxation into the idea that since we're Christians, spiritual life will just happen. On the other hand, and I think we're often quite double-minded, just as I think we can see in the Pharisees. On the other hand, we sort of flip over to this idea that, well, if I work hard and I do my spiritual disciplines, and then, then God will... Uh, God will owe me. He'll have to turn up and give me spiritual stuff. And I see this in the lives of most of us as Christians. We tend to flip-flop between seasons of spiritual complacency and passivity in which we think, well, God will just do it irrespective of what I do. So, you know, I might as well not worry. If God's going to turn up and if there's going to be another move of the spirit, well, that's up to God and he'll involve me and I don't need to do anything. And on the other hand, we have seasons, a little bit like everybody trying to get fit in the new year, where we give it a really good go. Maybe you pick up the reading plan that we've got for uh, Breathe. Say, oh, brilliant. Something to read from the Bible every day. Off we go. And after about 10 days... You've not entered the third heaven of spiritual revelation like God should have given you by now since you've read your Bible for 10 days in a row, maybe leaving out Saturday because it's a bit of a busy day. And being disappointed, return to what's probably a slightly more stable state of saying, well, God's for us. He's already chosen me to be one of his people. And, you know, if he's going to do anything, I'm sure he'll let me know. And so there's a certain instability in that. And we might point the finger at others, but I believe that the spiritual lives of many of us are like that. We we know that we're definitely in the spiritual club, but that how much spiritual action we see depends critically on us and what we do. And as we read through this chapter, we'll see that Jesus cuts right across that. He doesn't even respond to the statement that Nicodemus makes. He just doesn't even go there. He doesn't enter into a conversation about whether he's going to be the one that brings the kingdom, but says this instead, reading from verse 3. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Now, In most translations, there'll be a footnote that says, or, born from above. Because the word in Greek that describes this birth is an ambiguous word. That is, it has two distinct meanings. There's lots of words like that. It's one of those. And it means both, again, born again, and it means from above. It means both of those things. And... John has uh, recorded this word knowing that it means both of those things and he's saying both of those things. So a better translation would be to stick it all in the main text and not worry about the footnote and say, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again from above. That's what this new birth is about. 
Nicodemus asked, how can a man be born when he's old? Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh and the spirit gives birth to spirit. You shouldn't be surprised at my saying, you must be born again from above. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You're Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and Do you not understand these things? I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know. And we testify to what we've seen. But still you people don't accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you don't believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? Let's just pause there again. Jesus just takes the conversation to a completely different place. And instead of talking about our actions and what we need to do to respond to God, he takes it to that point in our lives where we had no action that we could possibly take that would make any difference at all, the moment of birth. No child at the point of being, no baby at the point of being born is expected to take any responsibility for how things go. Elsewhere, Jesus is recorded as saying, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. To be a little child is to be totally dependent One of the fears that many of us have as we think of our advancing years is that we may again come to that place of a second childhood, like in in Shakespeare's Seven Ages, a, a second childhood when we will once again be dependent on others as we were at the start. To be a little child is to depend on someone else. Not to have control. Again, that's a fear that we might have about old age, that someone else will decide where we live, what we eat, who we see. It's probably, what is it now, four months ago or so, when we had that regional celebration here in early September, and Helen shared a prophetic word about holding the reins very, very tightly and needing to hold them more loosely to allow the horse, it's a picture of us in our relationship with God, to allow God freedom to set the direction, to move, for us not to be in control of where we go, but to allow God to be in control of where we go. And that's Jesus' teaching. Unless we become like little children, we can't, in, we can't get this spiritual life. It doesn't come by being clever grown-ups. And here, John records Jesus teaching that it, this is not just, I mean, how little? I mean, do, you, do you have to act like a seven-year-old? Do you have to act like a five-year-old? Do you have to act like a two-year-old to the point of uh, incontinence? I mean, how far, you know, you can't feed yourself, but how, far, how much control do we have to relinquish? Jesus says, you have to be born again. You've got to start right at the beginning. How are we born again? Jesus is very clear. Not by our own choice or power, but by a move of the Spirit. There's a word play here. In both Hebrew and Greek, there's one word 
that means both wind and spirit. So when Jesus speaks of being born again by the spirit and then moves on to say the wind blows where it wills, he's actually using the same word each time. The word is pneuma in Greek. It's where we get the word pneumatic for tires because you pump air into pneumatic tires. And Jesus says it's the spirit, it's not just ha- doesn't just happen to be the same word as wind in the language that it happened to be recorded in, but that's what the spirit's like. Just as the wind blows where it wills, and we don't understand it, we can't control it, we can't capture the wind and master it, the spirit is like that too. That is a picture of God's activity, that it's when the Spirit blows that we are changed. And there's this key moment for each one of us who've become Christians, there's a key moment at which we were born again. A miracle took place. And Kate prophesied about death and life. It's absolutely right right at the heart of what it is to be a Christian, that we were dead spiritually. The physical body's working, but we were dead spiritually. And the spirit has blown and given us life spiritually that we didn't have. It's not something that we could make happen. And having entered into the Christian life that way, that is the way that spiritual life continues to work. Something about God's mysterious working. Now that all makes sense. But the question I started with was, so, so how do we get spiritual life? And having got this far, the answer would seem to be a little bit like that simple reliance. And Well, I, you know, if, if and when God moves, I'm sure he'll tell me. And at this point in the chapter, we're still there that God's activity is basically unpredictable. So if I'm spiritual, well, great. Uh, that's because God's done something, and if I'm not, well, he just didn't. And you know, maybe there'll be a revival one day. Maybe there won't. Maybe my friends will get born again if God kind of happens to do something, and maybe they won't. But Jesus has more to say. It's not, it's not over, if you like. So, verse 13. Having just said to Nicodemus, you are really ignorant. I mean, really. He says, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert... So the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. In John, in the first chapter of his gospel, John has written already that Jesus, who is truly God, has come and become flesh and made God known to us. And here, Jesus himself says the same thing. No one's gone into heaven... No, no one is able to work out all this heavenly stuff. There's nothing you can do to ascend all the way up into heaven and get hold of it and work it out and discover for yourself how all this spiritual stuff works. But there is one who began in heaven and who's come from heaven and this is Jesus who has been made flesh and who shows us what God's really like. So this spirit that's blowing and bringing new life, this spirit that's like a wind where you don't understand it and you don't know where it's going, it's the same God that we see in Jesus. And so whereas we might say, I just don't know what God's going to do, it's totally unpredictable, Jesus has come and shown us clearly what God is like. So that now we know the mystery of heaven... What's spiritual life like? The mystery of heaven has been revealed in Christ. Whatever revelation we lack is made known in Christ. He is God, 
And uh, I don't know if you've heard this, this statement about the Trinity. God, three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if you've seen one of them, you've seen them all. That's what Jesus says about himself and the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. His disciples say, oh, we'd like to see the Father. Jesus says, but you've, you've seen me. So, you know, if you've seen one, you've seen them all. And when we see Jesus, we see what the Spirit is like. We don't have to guess what the Spirit's like, as if Jesus is understandable, but then the Holy Spirit is of a completely different personality type. It's not like that. Jesus and the Spirit, together with the Father, are one. So in looking for spiritual life, we're not depending on some sort of unpredictable force of nature. We're depending on Jesus. Oh, I should have clicked on. I'm not, there we go. Here we go. Verse 14 has this odd thing. If you don't know the story from the Old Testament that he's talking about, this is a strange thing to say. Moses sticking a snake on a stick. Um, So let's turn to Numbers chapter 21, where the story is. This is part of the story of the Israelites, the Hebrews, having come out of Egypt. And it says in verse 4, chapter 21, book of Numbers, the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God, not very clever, uh, and against Moses, and said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. Elsewhere it lists them, they, they, in, they list off the things they miss from Egypt. There's no onions, there's no garlic, there's no cucumbers. You can find that elsewhere in the Old Testament. They weren't happy. God sent venomous snakes. That's why it's not, it's not clever. To gr- you know, grumbling is a really big sin in God's eyes. Dear me. Um, there's something sort of profoundly enjoyable about grumbling in British culture, isn't there? We like a good old grumble. Grumpy old men have a special place in our hearts. Some of us look forward to being old enough to be able to feel we're allowed to be grumpy without being told off. And uh, in 1 Corinthians 10, this story of grumbling is recounted as profoundly offensive to God that we should moan. Just kind of worth noting that in passing. And God feels strongly enough about it that he sent venomous snakes among them. Maybe if he sent venomous snakes through the land of Britain, we'd all be a bit less grumpy, I don't know. They bit the people. I guess they would. And many Israelites died. This is an interesting story, not one you'd think to make up. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Now, here's the interesting thing. God doesn't answer their prayer. He doesn't say, oh, yeah, fair enough. You know, I'll let you off now. We'll get rid of the snakes. He says something else. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. And Jesus picks that story up and says, when I die and am lifted up on a cross, that's what it's going to be like. There are all kinds of images and pictures used to describe Jesus' death in the New Testament. He's a ransom payment. He redeems us. There is 
a sacrifice that was made. There's all kinds of different images. This is not one that we see very often. This is a sculpture of a bronze snake on a pole. We don't often say, I thank you, Jesus, my bronze snake from heaven. I've never sung that song. I don't know whether you have. Maybe somebody should write one. But there it is in John's Gospel. Jesus says, it's like that just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. And the way this snake worked was you just looked at it. You you just looked at it and you lived. It's a really good system. You just looked at it and you lived. And that's why I've used these words here. How do we get spiritual life? You know, we get spiritual life by focusing on Jesus. When we pay attention to him, focus on him, fix our eyes on him, spiritual life starts to flow to us. That's how it works. It's how it works in our worship. On Friday evening, a number of us were here on Friday evening. A few times a year we do a retreat time uh, sometimes it's here for pastors of our churches across uh, the county and beyond and we were doing that on Friday evening and we gave most of our time uh, after we'd eaten some curry obviously to worship and as soon as we began to sing we sang a hymn that we sang this morning crown him with many crowns the lamb upon the throne as, as soon as we began to sing that hymn It was like, you know, the windows of heaven were open and life began pouring out on all who were gathered, bringing peace to troubled minds, bringing revelation to confused minds. And some of you know that about 18 months ago, I very stupidly injured my shoulder. Um, uh, I, I bounced off a space hopper and landed on it, ended up in an ambulance and... Um, it's never been the same since. It can, it's just my shoulder's not right. And, and for the last few weeks, perhaps because I've started running again, maybe that's the reason why, I don't know, but it's been aching really badly. And there, on Friday evening, we worshipped, a couple of people prayed for me, and, and all of the, they prayed for my shoulder, and all of the aching just sort of seeped out of it. And it really felt like just fresh life, physically, was coming into me there in the context of having focused on Jesus. That's what we expect to happen when we worship, whether it's at home, with our missional community, certainly here on a Sunday morning. Uh, We sang the hymn, and I don't know whether you're just interested to know really how much we notice that. There's usually some moment... In our corporate worship on a Sunday, where we've been singing and focusing on him, maybe praying, reading the scriptures, focusing on him, there's a certain moment when you start to notice life is flowing. Uh, it didn't happen this morning when we sang Crown Him with Many Crowns. That's not the trick. Uh, It was good to sing that, and the band led us really well this morning, but they're not in control of all of this stuff. Uh, We paused at a certain point, we'd heard something prophetically, and uh, this morning, it was when we had just some space without singing and the band were playing, I don't know whether you were sensitive (laughs) to that, at that point it was... We could talk about it in different ways. Some people would say, the anointing came. I like that. The presence of God came. Yeah, it's true. There's a life began to flow from heaven to earth into our lives. And Jesus says that when he's lifted up the crucified Christ, when we look at him, we will live. The life of God comes into us as we look at him, that's why it's really good that we worship. We have three daughters, as many of you know, and on a Sunday morning, we try to help them 
engage with the worship that goes on. It gets a bit easier as they get older and can read and understand the words and so on. It's actually a bit of an effort because they'd much rather be focused on pretty much anything else, at least when they're little. Uh, In as much as they join in with us, focusing on Jesus, spiritual life will flow to them. Jesus says, look at me and you'll live. I want my children to be full of spiritual life. So if we can help them to spend even 10 minutes of the 30, 40 minutes that we spend in worship focusing on it, if they can even, the more they can connect, the better. Because, and it's true for all of us. The more we can connect, the more we can focus on Jesus, the more life we will receive. Now, we don't come to worship God just for what we can get from him. There's, a, there's another more profound reason for worshipping, which is that he's worth it. And frankly, if no spiritual life was ever given to us any time we ever worshipped, we should still do it for all eternity. Because he's worth it. That's, that's, that's why we do it. That's why I like the idea of us all being here to give as much time to it as possible. It's a profound concern for his worth. And I, you know, you understand that, I'm sure. But it is also the case that when we worship him, life flows to us. How can we access the life of the Spirit? How can we have a spiritual life as Jesus had a spiritual life? Well, a key is looking to Jesus, paying attention to him. Uh, Sunday by Sunday, the band that is here are a help to us, to help us focus our eyes, and it does us the world of good. Where have we got to? Verse 14 and uh, 15 just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert so that the son of man so the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him underlining the word believes everyone who believes in him may have eternal life for god so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life let's just make sure we understand what a couple of these words mean. The word belief can sometimes imply just getting your head around things. You know, we believe that certain things are true. It's an intellectual exercise. The authorised version of the Bible translates the word here not just as believe, but believe on. Some of you will be familiar with that language those who believe on Jesus, which is a good translation because it's not just about giving intellectual assent, going, oh, all right then, up here, but a thorough dependence on God, a leaning on him, believing on him. It has a personal commitment made, not just thinking it through, but relying on him. It's what Jesus has been talking about. There's a part of this whole thing of being a little child, depending on him. When little children believe that their parents love them, believe that they are there for them, that is what makes them run to them and expect food and ask for chocolate and whatever else. It is because... You know, there's no two-year-old in the world that says, I believe, well, they probably can't say these words anyway, but even if they could, there's no two-year-old in the world that thinks, let's leave it there, that thinks, I believe my mummy and daddy love me, and leaves it at that. That's crazy, isn't it? You, no child would do that. They'd all, they'd all perish if they didn't explain their needs and look for help from those that they know love them. So believing in Jesus, which Jesus is necessary to get eternal life, is an active leaning on him. This eternal life also needs explaining. 
Because when we read the phrase eternal life, we probably think of that one aspect of it that Kate mentioned again earlier, that life that is endless, that will go on forever, eternal in that sense. But again, the phrase here literally means the life of the age. The life of the age. And the age that they had in mind was this coming kingdom, this new kingdom that the Messiah would bring. So the life of the new age, that Jewish understanding had been that here's the current age they were living in with all of its failures and sufferings and so on. And that at a certain point, God would send an anointed king who would introduce a new kingdom and a new age would start. Now, the reality that came in Christ was slightly different to that. It looks more like this. That when Jesus came in the flesh and then died on the cross and rose again, what he did was start the new age. His kingdom, the kingdom that had been long promised. But what he didn't do was close down the existing current age that we live in. He said, I'll be coming back to do that a bit later on. At which point his kingdom would then continue in all of its fullness. And we live in between Christ's first coming and his second coming. We live in this period of the crossover of two ages. We live with the reality still of a fallen world around us. And we suffer. And we sin. And through the new birth that we've experienced in Christ, we also participate in the new kingdom, this new age that Christ has begun. That's the space in which we live our spiritual lives. And what Jesus teaches is that whilst we live this life, we have constant access to the life of the coming kingdom. We don't have to live on that bottom line and be entirely consumed with just the world as it is. But because of what Jesus has done for us, we can look to him, we can lean on him, and as we do those things, the new life from heaven will flow to us. And we will experience the kind of life that Jesus himself experienced. And that's what the phrase eternal life means. It's not just a promise that we'll never die. It's a quality of life, the life of the new age. That life in which there is intimacy with God, in which there is miraculous power, in which there is love and forgiveness and endurance, where there's wisdom and peace. That life is ours. When... I was prayed for on Friday evening and my shoulder got better. I went home thinking, wow, I wonder whether it's re- I, I think it might be really properly healed. Because what's happened is a ligament that was ruptured and is now longer than it should be. And it needs shortening. And that ain't going to happen medically. And I thought, oh, it's so much better. And I woke up the next morning... I woke up the next morning feeling really good and thinking, I really don't want to move. This is honestly, I don't want to move because right now I feel like it might be healed. (laughs) And when I get up, I'll be able to tell whether it is properly. And I was living with this, I don't know if I want to test it. Anyway, um, although it feels far better, my shoulder's still not the right shape. Uh, We live in this crossover of ages. One of the things that can happen is that because we don't see 
because we don't yet see the kingdom in all its fullness, we can get a little bit, what's the right word? Jaded about it all, really. And there's this wonderful phrase in the New Testament about treasure in jars of clay. So on Saturday morning, when I realised that whilst my shoulder felt a lot better, it wasn't entirely healed, I could have done a number of different things. I could have said, well, what kind of God are you? I mean, come on, you made the universe. What's a shoulder? You could sort it out altogether. The right perspective is to recognise that Jesus puts treasure, true spiritual life, in jars of clay. And we can focus our attention on the clay that remains and can get quite depressed. But not only that, if we focus our attention on the clay, what we'll do is ignore the treasure. And the treasure is just as real. It would be living in unreality to be absorbed by the problems that remain when God has placed treasure into our lives. I think that just needs... There's a few people perhaps particularly for whom that you need to hear that. Spiritual life is available to us as we worship. You know, as we read the Bible and read about God and what he's like, again, we're looking to Jesus and life comes to us. And I like this picture. That's where we're going to end. I like this picture because leaning on Jesus is not like finding a comfortable armchair in which to sit. We're leaning on one who is dynamic and who gets us doing all kinds of things we would never have thought we'd get involved in. And leaning on him will is well expressed in that wonderful phrase, I pray and I obey. It's not just about telling God all the troubles that we have, but collaborating with him in order to see his kingdom come. And Andy spoke about that towards the end of our time of worship. God wants us to collaborate with him, to take hold of some things that he's already got for us, whether that's provision or other things. And as John also said, bringing God's word to us, the truth that we can always turn to God. And so I simply hope that having looked at these few verses this morning, we'll have just raised our level of faith and determination to look to God, to pray, to worship, to read our Bibles to obey the things that he said. It's not rocket science. Uh, Some of us were in a meeting the other day talking about prophecy, and someone said that he'd gone to Italy to do rocket science. You're like, yeah, whatever. He said, no, I'm a rocket scientist. (laughs) It's what I do. Um, Anyway, this isn't rocket science. It's, you know, praying, reading our Bibles, worshipping. You could have predicted, couldn't you, that I'd say that. You might have been hoping I'd have something clever to say instead. Because you've tried all of those things and you're not yet as spiritual as the Apostle Paul. But that's the stuff that God uses to pour his life into us. I think it would be great, since I've talked about quite a range of things, to take a moment's pause and to pray and ask God that out of all of that, he would speak to us where in our lives he would have us Take a step in the coming week to find more spiritual life in him than we've known before. So, Holy Spirit, breath and wind of God, blow in this place. Blow in this place, we pray. Spirit of Jesus, full of life, Grace, truth, power, forgiveness, wisdom, revelation, 
gentleness, peace, kindness. Spirit of Jesus, blow in this place, we pray. Come now. As we've worshipped you this morning, we thank you. You have poured out fresh life. As we've looked at your words, Lord Jesus, we've looked to you as we've done that. Thank you that you've poured out life in the last half hour or so as we've looked at your words. Lord, we want to collaborate with you. We want to be good dance partners. We want to learn to lean on you in the everyday of life, to find fresh life from you, believing on you. So I pray that just in these few moments of quiet, you'd speak to each one of us. Show us what it is that you would have us do to collaborate with you this week. Whether it's to do with spiritual disciplines of Bible reading and prayer and worship, whether there are other things, Lord, speak to us. As we pray, show us what we must do to obey, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's just take a minute or two to listen to what he may have to say.